Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say, throw cares away. Christmas is here, bringing good cheer to young and old, meek and the bold. Ding dong, ding dong. Ding dong, ding dong, that is their song, with joyful Seems to hear words of good cheer from everywhere, filling the air. Oh, how they pound, raising the sound. Oh, Hillendale, telling their tale. Gaily they ring while people sing songs of good cheer. Christmas is here. Merry, 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 merry Christmas. Merry, 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 merry Christmas. Happy holidays from all of us here at the Phantom Galaxy. We wanted to take a moment just to wish everyone a very joyous and safe holiday season. And to help you do that, we're going to wrap up our holiday coverage with a two-part episode dedicated to Christmas ghost stories. The tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time has a very long and storied past, goes well beyond and before uh, Bing Crosby sang about it in the most wonderful time of the year. And those stories didn't always center on the holiday itself or have to have holiday elements. And in fact, some of the stories we have for you tonight do not. This episode is a big one, so big that we had to split it into two pieces that we'll be releasing at the same time. So what we have brought are three stories in this episode and three stories in the next episode that are, some of them are new, some of them are old, all of them are creepy. So we also got a great lineup of talent for you here that are going to share the stories with you. We have Victor H. Rodriguez, the author of The Sound of Fear, and also host of Into the Sound of Fear, his podcast based uh, from his collection of short stories. We also have Jason Jay of the Dead Piles from Horror Movie Weekly and also from Consider the Cinema. And he has a great newer story for us that he's going to read. And then finally, uh, I'm so happy to bring in Hugh Lloyd from the Undead Wookiee. So we have our very own British voice reading a classic British ghost story from M.R. James. So I'm really excited about this. And once this episode is finished, you can go over to the next one and catch a lot of great voices over there, too. We're going to have Dave Roy coming back, Bill Van Vagel, my co-host, is sharing a story. And we also have Macabre Marvel from the Nightmare Emporium. She has an original story that she actually wrote that features a classic folkloric holiday figure. Tonight, let's begin with Victor Rodriguez reading a Robert E. Howard story. That might seem like an odd choice when we think of ghosts and ghost stories. Uh, Howard, of course, is the creator of Conan the Barbarian, but he's also the creator of Solomon Cain, a 
demon, witch hunter character, a Puritan, who exists in a totally different universe from Conan, but there are some similarities. And while this story exists in a mostly real universe, there are supernatural forces lurking around the corner and around the edges. And so tonight's story, Rattle of Bones, doesn't have anything to do with the holiday, but it has a great creepy haunted inn, and the supernatural presence at the center of the story is a fascinating one. So without further ado, here is Victor with Rattle of Bones. Rattle of Bones by Robert E. Howard Landlord, who? The shout broke the lowering silence and reverberated through the black forest with sinister echoing. This place hath a forbidding aspect, meseemeth. The two men stood in front of the forest tavern. The building was low, long, and rambling, built of heavy logs. Its small windows were heavily barred, and the door was closed. Above the door, its sinister sign showed faintly a cleft skull. This door swung slowly open, and a bearded face peered out. The owner of the face stepped back and motioned his guests to enter, with a grudging gesture, it seemed. A candle gleamed on a table. A flame smoldered in the fireplace. Your names? Solomon Kane, said the taller man briefly. Gaston Larmont, the other man spoke curtly. But what is that to you? Strangers are few in the Black Forest, grunted the host. Bandits many. Sit at yonder table, and I will bring food. The two men sat down with the bearing of men who have traveled far. One was a tall gaunt man, clad in a featherless hat and somber black garments, which set off the dark pallor of his forbidding face. The other was of a different type entirely, bedecked with lace and plumes, although his finery was somewhat stained from travel. He was handsome in a bold way, and his restless eyes shifted from side to side, never still an instant. The host brought wine and food to the rough-hewn table and then stood back in the shadows like a somber image, his features now receding into vagueness, now luridly etched in the firelight as it leaped and flickered, were masked in a beard which seemed almost animal-like in thickness. A great nose curved above this beard, and two small red eyes stared unblinkingly at his guests. "'Who are you?' suddenly asked the younger man. "'I am the host of the Cleft Skull Tavern,' sullenly replied the other. His tone seemed to challenge his questioner to ask further. "'Do you have many guests?' Larmont pursued. "'Few come twice,' the host grunted. Kane started and glanced up straight into those small red eyes, as if 
He sought for some hidden meaning in the host's words. The flaming eyes seemed to dilate, then dropped sullenly before the Englishman's cold stare. I'm for bed, said Kane abruptly, bringing his meal to a close. I must take up my journey by daylight. And I, added the Frenchman, host, show us to our chambers. Black shadows wavered on the walls as the two followed their silent host down a long, dark hall. The stocky, broad body of their guide seemed to grow and expand in the light of the small candle which he carried, throwing a long, grim shadow behind him. At a certain door he halted, indicating that they were to sleep there. They entered. The host lit a candle with the one he carried, then lurched back the way he had come. In the chamber, the two men glanced at each other. The only furnishings in the room were a couple of bunks, a chair or two, and a heavy table. "'Let us see if there be any way to make fast the door,' said Kane. "'I like not the looks of mine host.' "'There are racks on door and jam for a bar,' said Gaston. "'But no bar.' "'We might break up the table and use its pieces for a bar,' mused Kane. Mon Dieu, said Larmont, you are timorous, monsieur. Kane scowled. I like not being murdered in my sleep, he answered gruffly. My faith, the Frenchman laughed. We are chance met. Until I overtook you in the forest road an hour before sunset, we had never seen each other. I have seen you somewhere before, answered Kane, although I cannot now recall where. As for the other... I assume every man is an honest fellow, until he shows me he is a rogue. Moreover, I am a light sleeper, and slumber with a pistol at hand. The Frenchman laughed again. I was wondering how Monsieur could bring himself to sleep in the room with a stranger. <laughs> All right, Monsieur Englishman, let us go forth and take a bar from one of the other rooms. Taking the candle with them, they went into the corridor. Utter silence reigned, and the small candle twinkled redly and evilly in the thick darkness. "'Mine host hath neither guests nor servants,' muttered Solomon Cain. "'A strange tavern. What is the name now? These German words come not easily to me. The Cleft Skull. A bloody name, faith.' They tried the rooms next to theirs, but no bar rewarded their search. At last, they came to the last room at the end of the corridor. They entered. It was furnished like the rest, except that the door was provided with a small, barred opening and fastened from the outside with a heavy bolt, which was secured at one end to the door jamb. They raised the bolt and looked in. There should be an outer window, but there is not, muttered Kane. Look. The floor was stained darkly. The walls and the one bunk were hacked in places, great splinters having been torn away. Men have died in here, said Kane somberly. Is yonder not a bar fixed against the wall? Aye, but tis made fast, said the Frenchman, tugging at it. The... A section of the wall swung back, and Gaston gave a quick exclamation. A small, secret room was revealed, and the two men bent over the grisly thing 
that lay upon its floor. The skeleton of a man, said Gaston, and behold how his bony leg is shackled to the floor. He was imprisoned here and died. Nay, said Cain, the skull is cleft. Methinks mine host had a grim reason for the name of his hellish tavern. This man, like us, was no doubt a wanderer who fell into the fiend's hands. Likely, said Gaston, without interest. He was engaged in idly working the great iron ring from the skeleton's leg bones. Failing in this, he drew his sword and with an exhibition of remarkable strength, cut the chain which joined the ring on the leg to a ring set deep in the log floor. Why should he shackle a skeleton to the floor? mused the Frenchman. Mon bleu, tis a waste of good chain. Now, monsieur, he ironically addressed the white heap of bones, I have freed you, and you may go where you like. Have done, Cain's voice was deep. No good will come of mocking the dead. The dead should defend themselves, laughed Larmont. Somehow I will slay the man who kills me, though my corpse climb up forty fathoms of ocean to do it. Cain turned toward the outer door, closing the door of the secret room behind him. He liked not this talk which smacked of demonry and witchcraft, and he was in haste to face the host with the charge of his guilt. As he turned with his back to the Frenchman, he felt the touch of cold steel against his neck and knew that a pistol muzzle was pressed close beneath the base of his brain. Move not, monsieur, the voice was low and silky. Move not, or I will scatter your few brains over the room. The Puritan, raging inwardly, stood with his hands in the air while Larmont slipped his pistols and sword from their sheaths. Now you can turn, said Gaston, stepping back. Cain bent a grim eye on the dapper fellow, who stood bareheaded now, hat in one hand, the other hand leveling his long pistol. Gaston the Butcher, said the Englishman somberly. Fool that I was to trust a Frenchman. You range far, murderer. I remember you now, with that cursed great hat off. I saw you in Calais some years gone. Aye, and now you will never see me again. What was that? Rats exploring yon skeleton, said Kane, watching the bandit like a hawk, waiting for a single slight wavering of that black gun muzzle. The sound was the rattle of bones. Like enough, returned the other. Now, Monsieur Kane, I know you carry considerable money on your person. I had thought to wait until you slept and then slay you, but the opportunity presented itself and I took it. You trick easily. I had little thought that I should fear a man with whom I had broken bread, said Kane, a deep timber of slow fury sounding in his voice. The bandit laughed cynically. His eyes narrowed as he began to back slowly toward the outer door. Kane's sinews tensed involuntarily. He gathered himself like a giant wolf about to launch himself in a death leap, but Gaston's hand was like a rock and the pistol never trembled. 
We will have no death plunges after the shot, said Gaston. Stand still, monsieur. I have seen men killed by dying men, and I wish to have distance enough between us to preclude that possibility. My faith, I will shoot you. You will roar and charge, but you will die before you reach me with your bare hands. And mine host will have another skeleton in his secret niche. That is, if I do not kill him myself. The fool knows me not, nor I him. Moreover, the Frenchman was in the doorway now, sighting along the barrel. The candle, which had been stuck in a niche on the wall, shed a weird and flickering light which did not extend past the doorway. And with the suddenness of death, from the darkness behind Gaston's back, a broad, vague form rose up and a gleaming blade swept down. The Frenchman went to his knees like a butchered ox, his brains spilling from his cleft skull. Above him towered the figure of the host, a wild and terrible spectacle, still holding the hanger with which he had slain the bandit. Ho ho, he roared, back. Cain had leaped forward as Gaston fell, but the host thrust into his very face a long pistol which he held in his left hand. Back, he repeated in a tigerish roar, and Cain retreated from the menacing weapon and the insanity in the red eyes. The Englishman stood silent, his flesh crawling, as he sensed a deeper and more hideous threat than the Frenchman had offered. There was something inhuman about this man, who now swayed to and fro like some great forest beast, while his mirthless laughter boomed out again. Gaston the Butcher, he shouted, kicking the corpse at his feet. Ho ho, my fine brigand will hunt no more. I had heard of this fool who roamed the Black Forest. He wished gold, and he found death. Now. Your gold shall be mine, and more than gold, vengeance. I am no foe of yours, Cain spoke calmly. All men are my foes. Look, the marks on my wrists. See, the marks on my ankles. And deep in my back, the kiss of the knout. And deep in my brain, the wounds of the years of the cold, silent cells where I lay as punishment for a crime I never committed. The voice broke in a hideous, grotesque sob. Cain made no answer. This man was not the first he had seen whose brain had shattered amidst the horrors of the terrible continental prisons. But I escaped, the scream rose triumphantly, and here I make war on all men. What was that? Did Cain see a flash of fear in those hideous eyes? My sorcerer is rattling his bones, whispered the host, then laughed wildly. Dying, he swore his very bones would weave a net of death for me. I shackled his corpse to the floor, and now... Deep in the night, I hear his bare skeleton clash and rattle as he seeks to be free. And I laugh, I laugh, ho, 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 
how he yearns to rise and stalk like old King Death along these dark corridors when I sleep to slay me in my bed. Suddenly, the insane eyes flared hideously. You were in that secret room, you and this dead fool. Did he talk to you? Cain shuddered in spite of himself. Was it insanity, or did he actually hear the faint rattle of bones, as if the skeleton had moved slightly? Cain shrugged his shoulders. Rats will even tug at dusty bones. The host was laughing again. He sidled around Cain, keeping the Englishman always covered, and with his free hand, opened the door. All was darkness within, so that Cain could not even see the glimmer of the bones on the floor. All men are my foes, mumbled the host in the incoherent manner of the insane. Why should I spare any man who lifted a hand to my aid when I lay for years in the vile dungeons of Karlsruhe and for a deed never proven? Something happened to my brain then. I became as a wolf, a brother to these of the Black Forest to which I fled when I escaped. They have feasted, my brothers, on all who lay in my tavern, all except this one who now clashes his bones, this magician from Russia. Lest he come stalking back through the black shadows when night is over the world and slay me, for who may slay the dead? I stripped his bones and shackled him. His sorcery was not powerful enough to save him from me, but all men know that a dead magician is more evil than a living one. Move not, Englishmen. Your bones I shall leave in this secret room beside this one. To The maniac was standing partly in the doorway of the secret room now, his weapon still menacing Cain. Suddenly, he seemed to topple backward and vanished in the darkness. And at the same instant, a vagrant gust of wind swept down the outer corridor and slammed the door shut behind him. The candle on the wall flickered and went out. Kane's groping hands, sweeping over the floor, found a pistol and he straightened, facing the door where the maniac had vanished. He stood in the utter darkness, his blood freezing, while a hideous muffled screaming came from the secret room intermingled with a dry, grisly rattle of fleshless bones. Then silence fell. Cain found flint and steel and lighted the candle. Then, holding it in one hand and the pistol in the other, he opened the secret door. Great God, he muttered as cold sweat formed on his body. This thing is beyond all reason. Yet with mine own eyes I see it. Two vows have here been kept, for Gaston the Butcher swore that even in death he would avenge his slaying, and his was the hand which set yon fleshless monster free, and he... The host of the cleft skull lay lifeless on the floor of the secret room, his bestial face set in lines of terrible fear, and deep in his broken neck were sunk the bare finger bones of the sorcerer's skeleton.
And that was Robert E. Howard's Rattle of Bones, read by Victor Rodriguez. Again, author of Sound of Fear. You check out our show notes. You can find the link to uh, Victor's book, which is a great one. It's a collection of short stories, and they're all very good. And remember that Solomon Kane is a character that Robert E. Howard wrote quite a bit about. Again, not quite as much as Conan. So there are other stories and adventures out there involving Kane, and I do recommend them. Next, this is a more modern story. It was written in 2014, but it uses all of the gothic devices that we would expect in an M.R. James or Oliver Onion story, along with some very precise Christmas traditions and touches that add a lot to this particular story. So here's Jason J. The Dead Piles reading Jeanette Winterson's Dark Christmas. Hi, this is Jay of the Dead from HorrorMovieWeekly.com. The following Yuletide tale of terror is titled Christmas Story, Dark Christmas by Jeanette Winterson. And it can be found at JeanetteWinterson.com. December 22nd, 2014. We had borrowed the house from a friend none of us seemed to know. High Fallen House stood on an eminence overlooking the sea. It was a square Victorian gentleman's residence. The large bay windows looked down through the pines towards the shore. Six stone steps led the visitor up to the double front door where a gothic bell pull released a loud mournful clang deep into the distances of the house. Laurel lined the drive. The stable block was disused. The walled garden had been locked up in 1914 when the gardeners went to war. Only one had returned. I had been warned that the high brick wall enclosing the garden was unsafe. As I passed it slowly in the car, I saw a faded notice falling off the paint-peeled door. Do not enter. I was the first to arrive. My friends were following by train and I was to collect them the next day and then we would settle down to Christmas. I had driven from Bristol and I was tired. There was a Christmas tree roped on the top of my 4x4 and a truckload of provisions. We were not near any town, but the housekeeper had left stacked wood to build a fire and I had brought a shepherd's pie and a bottle of Rioja for the first night. The kitchen was cheerful enough once I had got the fire going and the radio playing while I unpacked our festive supplies. I checked my phone, no signal. Still. I knew the time of the train tomorrow and it was a relief to feel that the world had gone away. I put my food in the oven to heat up, poured a glass of wine, and went upstairs to find myself a bedroom. The first landing had three bedrooms leading off it. Each had a moth-eaten rug, a metal bedstead, and a mahogany chest of drawers. At the far end of the landing was a second set of stairs up to the attic floor. I am not romantic about maids' rooms or nurseries, and there was something about that second set of stairs that made me hesitate. The landing was bright in the sudden way of light sun on a winter's afternoon. Yet the light ended abruptly at the foot of the stairs as though it couldn't go any further. I didn't want to be near that set of stairs, so I chose the room at the front of the house. As I went to bring up my bag, the house bell started to ring its jerky metallic hammer sounding somewhere in the guts of the house. I was surprised, but not alarmed. I expected the housekeeper. I opened the door. There was no one there. I went down the steps and looked round. I admit I was frightened. The night was clear and soundless. There was no car in the distance, no footsteps walking away. Determined to conquer my fear, I walked round a little. Then turning back to the house, I saw it. The bell wire ran along the side of the house under a sheltering gutter. 
Perhaps 30 or 40 bats were dangling upside down on the vibrating wire. The same number swooped and swerved in a dark mass. Obviously, their movement on the wire had set off the bell. I like bats. Clever bats. Good. Now supper. I ate. I drank. I wondered why love is so hard and life is so short. I went to bed. The room was warmer now and I was ready to sleep. The sound of the sea ebbed into the flow of my dreams. I woke from a dead sleep in dead darkness to hear what? What can I hear? It sounded like a ball bearing or a marble rolling on the bare floor above my head. It rolled hard on hard then hit the wall. Then it rolled again in the other direction. This might not have mattered except that the other direction was uphill. Things can come loose and roll downwards, but they cannot come loose and roll upwards. Unless someone... That thought was so unwelcome that I dismissed it, along with the law of gravity. Whatever was rolling over my head must be a natural dislodging. The house was drafty and unused. The attics were under the eaves where any kind of weather might get in. Weather or an animal. Remember the bats. I pulled the covers up to my eyebrows and pretended not to listen. There it was again. Hard on hard, on hit, on pause, on roll. I waited for sleep, waiting for daylight. We were lucky, even the worst of us, because daylight comes. It was a brooding day, that 21st of December, the shortest day of the year. Coffee, coat on, car keys. Shouldn't I just check the attic? The second set of stairs was narrow, a servant's staircase. It led to a lath and plaster corridor, barely a shoulder width wide. I started coughing. Breathing was difficult. Damp had dropped the plaster in thick, crumbling heaps on the floorboards. As below, there were three doors. Two were closed. The door to the room above my room was ajar. I made myself go forward. The room was under the eaves, as I had guessed. The floor was rough. There was no bed, only a washstand and a clothes rail. What surprised me was the nativity scene in the corner. Standing about two feet tall, it was more like a doll's house than a Christmas decoration. Inside the open-fronted stable stood the animals, the shepherds, the crib, Joseph. Above the roof, on a bit of wire, was a battered star. It was old, handmade in a workmanlike but not craftsmanlike sort of way. The painted wood now rubbed and faded like pigments of time. I thought I would carry it downstairs and put it by our Christmas tree. It must have been made for the children when there were children here. I stuffed my pockets with the figures and animals and left quickly, leaving the door open. I had to set off for the station. Stephen and Susie could help me with the rest later. As soon as I was out of the house, my lungs felt clear again. It must be the plaster dust. The drive to the station was along the coast road, lonely and unyielding. The road turned in a series of blind bends and tight corners. I met no one, and I saw no one. Gulls circled over the sea. The station itself was a simple shelter on a long single track. There were no information boards. I checked my phone, no signal. At last the train appeared distantly down the track. I was excited. Memories of visiting my father as a child when he was stationed at his RAF base gives me a rush of pleasure whenever I travel by train or come to meet one. The train slowed and halted. The guard stood down for a moment. I watched the doors. It wasn't a big train, this branch line train, but none of the doors opened. I waved at the guard who came over. I am meeting my friends. He shook his head. Train's empty. 
Next stop is the end of the line. I was confused. Had they got off at the earlier stop? I described them. The guard shook his head again. I noticed strangers. They would have boarded at Carlisle, asked me where to get off, always do. Is there another train before tomorrow? One a day, and that's your lot, and more than anybody needs in a place like this. Where are you staying? High Fallen House. Do you know it? Oh, aye, we all know it. He looked as if he were about to say something else. Instead, he blew his whistle. The empty train pulled away, leaving me staring down the long track, watching the red light like a warning. I needed to get a signal on my phone. I drove past the station, following the steep hill, hoping some height would connect me to the rest of the world. At the top of the hill, I stopped the car and got out, pulling up the collar of my coat. The first snow hit my face with insect insistence, sharp and spiteful, like little bites. I looked out across the whitening bay. That must be High Fallen House, but what's that? Two figures walking on the beach. Is it Stephen and Susie? Have they driven here after all? Then as I strained my eyes against the deceit of distance, I realized that the second figure was much smaller than the first. They were walking purposefully towards the house. When I arrived back, it was nearly dark. I put on the lights, blew the fire into a blaze. There was no sign of the mysterious couple I had seen from the hill. Perhaps it had been the housekeeper and her daughter come to make sure that everything was all right. I had a telephone number for Mrs. Wormwood, but without a signal, I could not call her. The snow was thickening in windy swirls. Relax, have a whiskey. I leaned on the warm kitchen range with my whiskey in my hand. The wooden figures I had brought down from the attic were lying on the kitchen table. I should go up and get the stable. Uh, I don't want to. I bounded up the first set of stairs using energy to force out unease. At my bedroom, I put on the light. That felt better. The second set of stairs stood in the shadow at the end of the long landing. I felt that constriction in my lungs again. Why am I holding onto the handrail like an old man? I could see that the only light to the attic was at the top of the stairs. I found the round brown Bakelite switch. I flicked down the nipple. A single bulb lit up reluctantly. The room was straight ahead. The door was closed. Hadn't I left it open? I turned the handle and stood in the doorway, the room dimly lit by the light from the stairs. Washstand, nativity, clothes rail. On the clothes rail was a child's dress. I hadn't noticed that before. I suppose I had been in a hurry. Pushing aside my misgivings, I went in purposefully and bent down to pick up the wooden nativity. It was heavy and I had just got it secure in my arms when the light on the landing went out. Hello? Who's there? There's someone breathing like they can barely breathe, not faint, struggling for breath. I mustn't turn around because whoever or whatever it is, is behind me. I stood still for a minute, steadying my nerve. Then I shuffled forward towards the edge of the light coming up from downstairs. At the doorway, I heard a step behind me, lost my balance and put out a hand to steady myself. My hand gripped something wet, the clothes rail. It must be the dress. My heart was overbeating. Don't panic, Bakelite, bad wiring, strange house, darkness, aloneness. But you're not alone, are you? Back in the kitchen with whiskey, radio four, and pasta boiling, I examined the dress. It was for a small child and it was hand knitted. The wool was smelly and sopping. I washed it out and left it hanging over the sink to drip. 
I guess there must be a hole in the roof and the dress had been soaking up in the rain for a long time. I ate my supper, tried to read, told myself it had been nothing, nothing at all. It was only 8pm. I didn't want to go to bed, though the snow outside was like a quilt. I decided to arrange the nativity. Donkey, sheep, camels, wise men, shepherds, star, Joseph. The crib was there, but it was empty. There was no Christ child, and there was no Mary. Had I dropped them in the dark room? I hadn't heard anything fall, and these wooden figures were six inches tall. Joseph was wearing a woolen tunic, but his wooden legs had painted puttees. I pulled off the tunic. Underneath, wooden Joseph wore a painted uniform. First World War. When I turned him round, I saw there was a gash in his back, like a stab wound. My phone beeped. I dropped Joseph, grabbed the phone. It was a text message from Susie, trying to call you, leave tomorrow. I pressed call, nothing. I tried to send a text, nothing. But what did it matter? Suddenly I felt relief and calm. They had been delayed, that was all. Tomorrow they would be here. I sat down again with the nativity. Perhaps the missing figures were inside. I put in my hand. My fingers closed round a metal object. It was a small iron key with a hoop top. Maybe it was the key to the attic door. Outside snow had fallen, snow on snow. The sky had cleared. The moon sped above the sea. I had gone to bed and I was deep asleep when I heard it clearly. Above me, footsteps, pacing, down the room, hesitate, turn, return. I lay in bed, eyes staring blindly at the blind ceiling. Why do we open our eyes when we can't see anything? And what was there to see? I don't believe in ghosts. I wanted to put on the light, but what if the light didn't come on? Why would it be worse to be in darkness I had not chosen than darkness I was choosing? But it would be worse. I sat up in bed and pulled back the curtain a little. The moon had been so bright tonight, surely there would be light. There was light. Outside the house, hand in hand, stood the still and silent figures of a mother and child. I did not sleep till daylight, and when I slept and woke again, it was almost midday and already the light was lowering. Hurrying to get coffee, I saw that the dress was gone. I had left it dripping over the sink and it was gone. Get out of the house. I set off for the station. There was an air frost that had coated the trees in glittering white. It was beautiful and deathly. The world held in ice. On the road there were no car tracks, no noise but the roar and drop of the sea. I moved slowly and saw no one. In the white, unmoving landscape, I wondered if there was anyone else left alive. At the station I waited. I waited some time past the time until the train whistled on the track. The train stopped. The guard got down and saw me. He shook his head. There's no one, he said. No one at all. I thought I would cry. I took out my mute phone. I flashed up the message. Trying to call you, leave tomorrow. The guard looked at it. Happen it's you who should be leaving, he said. There's no more trains past Carlisle now till the 27th. Tomorrow was the last and that's been cancelled. Weather. I wrote down a number and gave it to the guard. Will you phone my friends and tell them I am on my way home? On the slow journey back to High Fallen House, I filled my mind with my departure. It would be slow and dangerous to travel at night, but I could not consider another night alone. Or not alone. All I had to do was manage 40 miles to Inch Barn. There was a pub and a guest house, and remote but normal life. The text message kept playing in my head. Had it really meant that I should leave? And why? Because Susie and Steven couldn't come? Weather? Illness? 
It's all a guessing game. The fact is, I have to go. The house seemed subdued when I returned. I had left the lights on and I went straight upstairs to pack my bag. At once, I saw that the light to the attic was on. I paused, breathed, of course it's on. I never switched it off. That proves it's a wiring fault. I must tell the housekeeper. My bag packed, I threw the food into a box and put everything back in the car. I had the whiskey in the front, a blanket I stole from the bed, and I had made a hot water bottle just in case. It was only 5 o'clock. At worst, I'd be in Inchbarn by 9pm. I got in the car and turned the key. The radio came on for a second, died, and as the ignition clicked and clicked, I knew that the battery was completely flat. Two hours ago, at the station, the car had started first time. Even if I had left the lights on, but I hadn't left the lights on, a cold panic hit me. I took a swig of the whiskey. I couldn't sleep in the car all night. I would die. I don't want to die. Back in the house, I wondered what I was going to do all night. I must not fall asleep. I had noticed some old books and volumes when I had explored downstairs yesterday. Sorted, dusty adventure stories and tales of empire. As I sorted through them, I came across a faded velvet photograph album. In the cold, deserted sitting room, I began to discover the past. High Fallen House, 1910. The women in long skirts with miraculous waists. The men in shooting tweeds. The stable boys in waistcoats. The gardening boys wearing flat caps. The maids in starched aprons. And here they are again in their Sunday best. A wedding photograph, Joseph and Mary Locke, 1912. He was a gardener, she was a maid. In the back of the album, loose and unsorted, were further photographs and newspaper cuttings. 1914, the men in uniform, there was Joseph. I took the album back into the kitchen and put it next to my wooden soldier. I had on my coat and scarf. I propped myself up in two chairs by the wood-fired range and dozed, and waited, and waited, and dozed. It was perhaps two o'clock when I heard a child crying. Not a child who has scraped his knee or lost a toy, but an abandoned child. A child whose own voice is his last hold on life. A child who cries and knows that no one will come. The sound was not above me, it was above the above me. I knew where it was coming from. I put my hands over my ears and my head between my knees. I could not shut the sound out. A locked up child, a hungry child, a child who is cold and wet and frightened. Twice I got up and went to the door. Twice I sat down again. The crying stopped. Silence. A dreadful silence. I raised my head. Footsteps were coming down the stairs. Not one foot in front of the other, but one foot dragging slightly. Then the other joining it, steadying, stepping again. At the bottom of the stairs, the footsteps paused. Then they did what I knew they would do with all the terror in my body. The footsteps came towards the kitchen door. Whatever was out there was standing 12 feet away on the other side of the door. I stood behind the table and picked up a knife. The door swung open with violent force that rammed the brass doorknob into the plaster of the wall. Wind and snow blew into the kitchen, whirling up the photographs and cuttings on the table. I saw that the front door itself was wide open, the entrance hall like a wind tunnel. Holding the knife, I went forward into the hall to shut the door. The pendant metal lantern that hung from the ceiling was swinging wildly on its long chain. A sudden gust lurched it forward like a child's swing pushed too high. 
It fell back at force against the large semicircular fan light over the front door. The fan light shattered and fell round my shoulders in shards of solid rain, flicker, buzz, darkness. The house lights were out. No wind now, no cries, silence again. Glass hit in the snow-lit hall. I walked out of the front door and into the night. At the drive, I turned left and I saw them, the mother and child. The child was wearing the woolen dress. She had no shoes. She held up her arms piteously to her mother who stood like stone. I ran forward. I grabbed the child in my arms. There was no child. I had fallen face down in the snow. Help me. That's not my voice. I'm on my feet again. The mother is ahead of me. I follow her. She's going towards the walled garden. She seems to pass through the door, leaving me on the other side. Do not enter. I tried the rusty hoop handle. It broke off, taking a piece of the door with it. I kicked the door open. It fell off its hinges. The ruined and abandoned garden lay before me. A walled garden of one acre used to feed 20 people, but that was a long time ago. There were footprints in the snow. I followed them. They led me to the bothy, its roof patched with corrugated iron. There was no door, but the inside seemed dry and sound. There was a tear-off calendar still on the wall, December 22nd, 1916. I put my hand in my pocket and I realized that the key from the nativity was there. At the same time, I heard a chair scrape across the floor in the room beyond. I had no fear anymore. As the body first shivers and then numbs with cold, my feelings were frozen. I was moving through shadows as one who dreams. In the room beyond, there was a low fire lit in the tiny tin fireplace. On either side of the fire sat the mother and child. The child was absorbed, playing with a marble. Her bare feet were blue, but she did not seem to feel the cold any more than I did. Are we dead, then? The woman with the shawl over her head stared at me, or through me, with deep expressionless eyes. I recognized her. It was Mary Locke. Her gaze went to a tall cupboard. I knew that my key fitted this cupboard and that I must open it. There are seconds that hold a lifetime. Who you were, what you will become, turn the key. A dusty uniform fell out, crumpling like a puppet. The uniform was not quite empty of its occupant. The back of the faded wool jacket had a long slash where the lungs would have been. I looked at the knife in my hand. Open the door. Are you in there? Open the door. I woke to blinding white. Where am I? Something's rocking. It's the car. I am in my car. A heavy glove was brushing off the snow. I sat up, found my keys, pressed the unlock button. It was morning. Outside was the guard from the train and a woman who announced herself as Mrs. Wormwood. Fine mess you've made here, she said. We went into the kitchen. I was shivering so much that Mrs. Wormwood relented and began to make coffee. Alfie fetched me, she said after he spoke to your friends. There's a body, I said, in the walled garden. Is that where it is? Said Mrs. Wormwood. At Christmas 1914, Joseph Locke had gone to war. Before he left for Flanders, he had made a nativity scene for his little girl. When he came back in 1916, he had been gassed. They heard him climbing the stairs, gasping for breath through froth corrupted lungs. His mind had gone, they said. At night in the attic where he slept with his wife and child, he leaned vacantly against the wall, rolling the child's marbles up and down, down and up, pacing, pacing, pacing. One night, 
Just before Christmas, he strangled his wife and daughter. He left them for dead in the bed and went out. But his wife was not dead. She followed him. In the morning, they found her sitting by the nativity, her dress dark with blood, his finger marks livid at her throat. She was singing a lullaby and pushing the point of the knife into the back of the wooden figure. Joseph was never found. Are you going to call the police, I said? What for, said Mrs. Wormwood. Let the dead bury the dead. Alfie the guard went out to see my car. It started first time, the exhaust blew in the white air. I left them clearing up and was about to set off when I remembered I had left my radio in the kitchen. I went back inside. The kitchen was empty. I could hear the two of them up in the attic. I picked up the radio. The nativity was on the table as I had left it. But it wasn't as I had left it. Joseph was there and the animals and the shepherds and the worn out star. And in the center was the crib. Next to the crib were the wooden figures of a mother and child. Wow, what an incredibly creepy and effective story. Jay, thank you for your reading, which I think added a lot. And I really appreciate what Winterson does here, taking classic Gothic tropes there in a more modern setting, giving us a lot of reasons why a person is still isolated and secluded in that house, even in 2014, and really taking the time to blend the holiday setting and the holiday elements in there, that nativity uh that potentially haunted nativity set is something that M.R. James would have loved. And speaking of M.R. James, who was many times thought of as the antiquarian ghost story author, because he wrote stories that revolved a lot of times around objects and apparitions tied to objects, our next story is A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad by M.R. James, and it's probably one of his most famous stories. It also was turned into a 1960s TV production uh, that became the inspiration that started a tradition of TV versions of Ghost Stories for Christmas. So tonight we have Hugh Lloyd from the Undead Wookiee podcast, who is reading A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, by M.R. James, read by Hugh Lloyd, music by Mayu. I suppose you will be getting away pretty soon now, full term is over, Professor, said a person not in the story to the Professor of Ontography, soon after they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the Hospital Hall of St. James's College. The Professor was young, neat and precise in speech. Yes, he said. My friends have been making me take up golf this term, and I mean to go to the East Coast, in point of fact to Burnstow. I dare say you know of it, for a week or ten days to improve my game. I hope to get off tomorrow. Oh, Parkins, 
said his neighbour on the other side. If you were going to Burnstow, I wish you would look at a sight of the Templar's preceptory and let me know if you think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer. It might, as you suppose, a person of antiquarian pursuits who said this, but since he merely appears in the prologue, there is no need to give him his entitlements. Certainly, said Parkings, the professor. If you will describe to me the whereabouts the site is, I will do my best to give you an idea of the lie of the land when I get back, or I could write to you about it, if you would tell me where you are likely to be. Oh, don't trouble to do that, thanks. It's only that I'm thinking of taking my family in that direction in the long, and it occurred to me that as very few of the English preceptories have ever been properly planned, I might have an opportunity of doing something useful on off days. The professor rather sniffed at the idea that planning out a preceptory could be described as useful. His neighbour continued, The site, I doubt if there is anything showing above ground. Must be down quite close to the beach now. The sea has encroached tremendously, as you know, all along that bit of coast. I should think from the map that it must be about three quarters of a mile from the Globe Inn, at the north end of town. Where are you going to stay? Well, at the Globe Inn, as a matter of fact, said Parkins. I've engaged a room there. I couldn't get in anywhere else. Most of the lodging houses are shut up in the winter. It seems, and as it is, they tell me that the only room of any size I can have is a double-bedded one, and that they haven't a corner in which to store the other bed. But I must have a fairly large room, for I am taking some books down, and I mean to do a bit of work. And though I don't quite fancy having an empty bed, not to speak of two, in what I may call for the time being my study, I suppose I can manage to rough it for the short time I shall be there. Do you call having an extra bed in your room roughing it, Parkins? said a bluff person opposite. Look here, shall I come down and occupy it for a bit? It'll be company for you. The professor quivered, but managed to laugh in a courteous manner. <laughs> By all means, Rogers, there's nothing uh, I should like better, but I'm afraid you would find it rather dull. Uh, you don't play golf, do you? No! <laughs> Thank heaven, said rude Mr. Rogers. Well, you see, when I'm not writing, I shall most likely be out on the links, and that, as I say, would be rather dull for you, I'm afraid. <laughs> don't! I don't know. There's a certain somebody I know in that place. But, of course, if you don't want me, speak the word barkings, I shan't be offended. Truth, as you always tell us, is never offensive. Parkins was indeed scrupulously polite and strictly truthful, it is feared that Mr. Rogers sometimes practice upon his knowledge of these characteristics. In Parkins' breast there was a conflict now raging, which for a moment or two did not allow him to answer. The interval being over, he said, Well, if you want the exact truth, Rogers, I was considering whether the room I speak of would really be large enough to accommodate us both comfortably, and also whether, mind I shouldn't have said this if you hadn't have pressed me, you would not constitute something in the nature of a hindrance to my work. Rogers laughed loudly. <laughs> well done, Parkins, he said. It's all right. I promise not to interrupt your work. Don't you disturb yourself about that. No, I won't come if you don't want me to, but I thought I should do so nicely to keep the ghosts off. 
here he might have been seen to wink and to nudge his next neighbour. Parkins might also have been seen to become pink. I beg pardon, Parkins, Rogers continued. I oughtn't have said that. I forgot you didn't like levity on these topics. Well, Parkins said, as you've mentioned the matter, I freely own that I do not like careless talk about what you call ghosts. A man in my position, he went on, raising his voice a little, cannot, I find, be too careful about appearing to sanction the current beliefs on subjects. As you know, Rogers, or as you ought to know, for I think I have never concealed my views. No, you certainly have not, old man, put in Roger's sotto voice. I hold that any semblance, any appearance of concession to the view that such things might exist is equivalent to a renunciation of all that I hold most sacred. But I'm afraid I have not succeeded in securing your attention. Your undivided attention was what Dr. Bimbler actually said, Rogers interrupted with every appearance of earnest desire for accuracy. But I beg your pardon, Parkins, I'm stopping you. No, not at all, said Parkins. I don't remember Blimber. Perhaps he was before my time, but I needn't go on. I'm sure you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, yes, said Rogers rather hastily. Just so, well, I'll go into it fully at Burnstow or somewhere. <laughs> In repeating the above dialogue, I have tried to give the impression which it made on me that Parkings was something of an old woman, rather hen-like, perhaps in his little ways, totally destitute, alas, of the sense of humour, but at the same time dauntless and sincere in his convictions, and a man deserving of the greatest respect. Whether or not the reader has gathered so much, that was the character which Parkins had. On the following day, Parkins did, as he hoped, succeeded in getting away from his college, and in arriving at Burnstow, he was made welcome at the Globe Inn, was safely installed in the large double-bedded room of which we have heard, and was able, before retiring to rest, to arrange his materials for work in apple pie order upon a commodious table, which occupied the outer end of the room, and was surrounded on three sides by windows looking out seaward. This is to say the central window looks straight out to sea, and those on the left and right commanded prospects along the shore to the north and south respectively. On the south you saw the village of Burnstow, on the north no houses were to be seen, but only the beach and the low cliff backing it. Immediately in front was a strip not considerable of rough grass, dotted with old anchors, capstans and so forth, then a broad path, then the beach. Whatever may have been the original distance between the Globe Inn and the sea, not more than 60 yards now separated them. The rest of the population of the inn was, of course, a golfing one, and included few elements that call for a special description. The most conspicuous figure was perhaps that of an ancient military secretary of a London club, and possessed a voice of incredible strength and of views of a pronouncedly Protestant type. These were apt to find utterance after his attendance upon the ministrations of the vicar, an esteemable man with inclinations towards a picturesque ritual which he gallantly kept down as far as he could out of deference to East Anglian tradition. Professor Parkins, one of whose principal characteristics was pluck, 
spent the greater part of the day following his arrival at Burnstow in what he called improving his game, in company with this Colonel Wilson. And during the afternoon, whether the process of improvement were to blame or not, I'm not sure, the Colonel's demeanour assumed a colouring so lurid that even Parkins jibbed at the thought of walking home with him from the links. He determined, after a short and furtive look at the bristling moustache and those incondined features that it would be wiser to allow the influences of tea and tobacco to do what they could with the Colonel before the dinner hour should render a meeting inevitable. I might walk home tonight along the beach, he reflected. Yes, and uh, take a look. There will be light enough for that at the ruins of which Disney was talking. I don't know exactly where they are by way, but I expect I can hardly help stumbling on them. This he accomplished, I may say, in the most literal sense, for in picking his way from the links to the shingle beach, his foot caught partly in a gorse root and partly in a biggish stone. And over he went. When he got up and surveyed his surroundings, he found himself in a patch of somewhat broken ground covered with small depressions and mounds. These later, when he came to examine them, proved to be simply masses of flints embedded in mortar and grown over with turf. He must, he quite rightly concluded, be on the site of the preceptory he had promised to look at. It seemed not unlikely to reward the spade of the explorer, enough of the foundations was probably left at no great depth to throw a good deal of light on the general plan. He remembered vaguely that the Templars to whom this site had belonged were in the habit of building round churches, and he thought a particular series of humps or mounds near him did appear to be arranged in something of a circular form. Few people can resist the temptation to try a little amateur research in a department quite outside their own, if only for the satisfaction of showing how successful they would have been had they only taken it up seriously. Our professor, however, if he felt something of this mean desire, was also truly anxious to oblige Mr Disney. So he paced with care the circular area he had noticed and wrote down its rough dimensions in his pocketbook. Then he proceeded to examine an oblong eminence which lay east of the centre of the circle and seemed to be, to his thinking, likely to be the base of a platform or altar. At one end of it, the northern, a patch of turf was gone, removed by some boy or other creature of a feral nature. It might, he thought, be as well to probe the soil here for evidences of masonry, and he took out his knife and began scraping away the earth. And now followed another little discovery. A portion of soil fell inward as he scraped and disclosed a small cavity. He lighted one match after another to help him see what nature the hole was, but the wind was too strong for them all. By tapping and scratching the sides with his knife, however, he was able to make out that it must be an artificial hole in masonry. It was rectangular and the sides top and bottom, if not actually plastered, were smooth and regular. Of course it was empty. No. As he withdrew the knife, he heard a metallic clink, and when he introduced his hand, it met with a cylindrical object lying on the floor of the hole. Naturally enough, he picked it up, and when he brought it into the light, now fast fading, he could see that it too was of man's making, a metal tube about four inches long, and evidently of some considerable age. By the time Parkins had made sure that there was nothing else in this odd receptacle, it was too late and too dark for him to think of undertaking any further search. 
What he had done had proved so unexpectedly interesting that he determined to sacrifice a little more of the daylight on the morrow to archaeology. The object which he now had safe in his pocket was bound to be of some slight value at least, he felt sure. Bleak and solemn was the view on which he took a last look before starting homeward. A faint yellow light in the west showed the links on which a few figures moving towards the clubhouse were still visible. The squat Martello Tower, the lights of Wolsey Village, the pale ribbon of sands intersected at intervals by black wooden groins, the dim and murmuring sea. The wind was bitter from the north, but it was at his back when he set out for the globe. He quickly rattled and clashed through the shingle and gained the sand upon which, but for the groins, which had to be got over every few yards, the going was good and quiet. One last look behind to measure the distance he had made since leaving the ruined Templar church showed him a prospect of company on his walk in the shape of a rather indistinct personage who seemed to be making great efforts to catch up with him, but made little, if any, progress. I mean, there was an appearance of running about his movements, but that the distance between him and Parkins did not seem materially to lessen. So at least Parkins thought and decided that he almost certainly did not know him, and that it would be absurd to wait until he came up. For all that company, he began to think, would really be very welcome on that lonely shore if only you could choose your companion. In his unenlightened days, he had read of meetings in such places, which now would hardly bear thinking of. He went on thinking of them, however, until he reached home, and particularly of one which catches most people's fancy at some time of their childhood. Now I saw in my dream that Christian had gone but a very little way when he saw a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. What should I do now, he thought. If I looked back and caught sight of a black figure sharply defined against the yellow sky and saw that it had horns and wings, I wonder whether I should stand or run for it. Luckily the gentleman behind is not of that kind and he seems to be about as far off now as when I first saw him. Well, at this rate he won't get his dinner as soon as I. And dear me, it's within a quarter of an hour of time I must run. Parkins had, in fact, very little time for dressing. When he met the Colonel for dinner, peace, or as much of her as that gentleman could manage, reigned once more in the military bosom. Nor was she put to flight in the hours of bridge that followed dinner, for Parkins was more than a respectable player. When, therefore, he retired towards twelve o'clock, he felt that he had spent his evening in quite a satisfactory way, and that even for so long as a fortnight or three weeks, life at the Globe would be supportable until similar conditions, especially, he thought, if I could go on improving my game. As he went along the passage, he met the boots of the globe, who stopped and said, oh, Beg your pardon, sir, but I was uh, brushing your coat just now, sir, and uh, I think something fell out of your pocket. I put it in the chest of drawers, sir, in your room, sir. A piece of paper or something like that, sir. Thank you, sir. You'll find it in your chest of drawers, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Good night, sir. The speech served to remind Parkins of his little discovery that afternoon. It was with some considerable curiosity that he turned it over by the light of his candles. It was of bronze, he now saw, and was shaped very much after the manner of the modern dog whistle. In fact, it was, yes, certainly, it was actually no more nor less than a whistle. 
He put it to his lips, but it was quite full of a fine caked-up sand or earth, which would not yield to knocking, but must be loosened with a knife. Tidy as ever in his habits, Parkins cleared out the earth onto a piece of paper and took the latter to the window to empty it out. The night was clear and bright, as he saw when he opened the casement, and he stopped for an instant to look at the sea and note a belated wanderer stationed on the shore in front of the inn. Then he shut the window, a little surprised at the late hours people kept at Burnstow, and took the whistle to the light again. Why, surely there were marks on it. Not merely marks, but letters. A very little rubbing rendered the deeply cut inscription quite legible, but the professor had to confess, after some earnest thought, that the meaning of it was obscure to him as the writing on the wall of the Belhazar. There were legends both on the front and the back of the whistle. One read thus, Flair Furbis Flair, the other Que Est Este Que Eunt. I ought to be able to make it out, he thought. I suppose I'm a little rusty in my Latin. When I come to think of it, I don't believe I even know the word for whistle. The long one does seem simple enough. It ought to mean, Who is this? Who is coming? Well, the best way to find out is to evidently whistle for him. He blew tentatively and stopped suddenly startled and yet pleased at the note he had elicited. It had a quality of infinite distance in it, and as soft as it was, he somehow felt it must be audible for miles round. It was a sound, too, that seemed to have power, of forming pictures in the brain. He saw quite clearly for a moment a vision of a wide, dark expanse at night, with a fresh wind blowing, and in the midst, a lonely figure. How employed he could not tell. Perhaps he would have seen more had not the picture been broken by the sudden surge of a gust of wind against his casement, so sudden that he made him look up, just in time to see the white glint of a seabird's wing somewhere outside the dark panes. The sound of the whistle had so fascinated him that he could not help trying it once more, this time more loudly. The note was little, if at all, louder than before, and repetition broke the illusion. No picture followed as he had half hoped it would. But what is this? Goodness, what a force the wind can get up in a few minutes. What a tremendous gust. There I knew that window fastening was no use. Ah, I thought so. Both candles out. It's enough to tear the room to pieces. The first thing was to get the window shut. While you might count twenty, Parkins was struggling with the small casement and felt almost as if he was pushing back a sturdy burglar. So strong was the pressure, it slackened all at once, and the window banged and latched itself. Now to relight the candles and see what damage, if any, had been done. No, nothing seemed amiss, no glass even was broken. But the noise had evidently aroused at least one member of the household. The colonel was to be heard stomping in his stockinged feet on the floor above and growling. Quickly as it had risen, the wind did not fall at once. On it went, moaning and rushing past the house at times, rising to a cry so desolate that, as Parkins disinterestedly said, it might have fanciful people feeling quite uncomfortable. Even the unimaginative, he thought, after a quarter of an hour, might be happier without it. 
Whether it was the wind or the excitement of golf or of the researchers in the perceptory that kept Parkins awake, he was not sure. Awake he remained in any case, long enough to fancy, as I am afraid I often do myself under such conditions, that he was the victim of all manner of fatal disorders. He would like counting the beats of his heart, convinced that it was going to stop working at any moment, and would entertain grave suspicions of his lungs, brain, liver, etc. Suspicions which he was sure would be dispelled by the return of the daylight, but which until then refused to be put aside. He found a little vicarious comfort in the idea that someone else was in the same boat, a near neighbour in the darkness, it was not easy to tell in his direction, was tossing and rustling in his bed too. The next stage was that Parkins shut his eyes and determined to give sleep every chance. Here again over excitement asserted itself in another form, that of making pictures. Experto crede. Pictures do come to the closed eyes of one trying to sleep and are often so little to his taste that his eyes must open and disperse them. Parkins' experience on this occasion was a very distressing one. He found that the picture which presented itself to him was continuous. When he opened his eyes, of course, it went, but when he shut them once more, it framed itself afresh and acted itself out again, neither quicker nor slower than before. What he saw was this. A long stretch of shore, shingled, edged by sand, and intersected at short intervals with black groins running down to the water. A scene, in fact, so like that of his afternoon's walk that in the absence of any landmark, it could not be distinguished therefrom. The light was obscure, conveying an impression of a gathering storm, late winter evening and slight cold rain. On this bleak stage at first, no actor was visible. Then, in the distance, a bobbing black object appeared. A moment more, and it was a man running, jumping, clambering over the groins, and every few seconds looking eagerly back. The nearer he came, the more obvious it was that he was not only anxious, but even terribly frightened, though his face was not to be distinguished. He was, moreover, almost at the end of his strength. On he came. Each successive obstacle seemed to cause him more difficulty than the last. Will he get over this next one, thought Parkins. It seems a little higher than the others. Yes, half climbing, half throwing himself, he did get over and fell all in a heap on the other side, the side nearest to the spectre. There, as if really unable to get up again, he remained crouching under the groin, looking up in an attitude of painful anxiety. So far, no cause whatever for the fear of the runner had been shown. But now they began to be seen. Far up the shore, a little flicker of something light-coloured moving to and fro with great swiftness and irregularity. Rapidly growing larger, it too declared itself as a figure in pale, fluttering draperies, ill-defined, there was something about its motion which made Parkins very unwilling to see it at close quarters. It would stop, raise arms, bow itself towards the sand, then run, stooping across the beach to the water edge, and back again, and then rising upright once more to continue its course forward at a speed that was startling and terrifying. 
The moment came when the pursuer was hovering above from left to right, only a few yards beyond the groin where the runner lay in hiding. And after two or three ineffectual castings hither and thither, it came to a stop, stood upright with arms raised high, and then darted forward towards the groin. It was at this point that Parkins always failed in his resolution to keep his eyes shut. With many misgivings as to incipient failure of eyesight, overworked brain, excessive smoking and so on, he finally resigned himself to light his candle, get out a book and pass the night waking rather than be tormented by this persistent panorama, which he saw clearly enough could only be a morbid reflection of his walk and his thoughts on that very day. The scraping of match on box and the glare of light must have startled some creatures of the night, rats or what not, which he heard scurry across the floor from the side of his bed with much rustling. Dear, dear, the match is out, fool that it is! But the second one burnt better, and a candle and book were dully procured over which Parkins poured till sleep of a wholesome kind came upon him, and that in no long space. For about the first time in his orderly and prudent life he forgot to blow out the candle, and when he was called next morning at eight there was still a flicker in the socket and a sad mess of guttered grease on the top of the little table. After breakfast he was in his room putting the finishing touches to his golfing costume. Fortune had again allotted the colonel to him for a partner when one of the maids came in. Oh, uh, if you please, she said. Would you like any extra blankets on your bed, sir? Ah, uh, thank you, said Parkins. Yeah, yes, I should like one. It seems likely to turn rather colder. In a very short time, the maid was back with the blanket. Which bed should I put it on, sir? she asked. What? Oh, why, that one, uh, the one I slept in last night, he said, pointing to it. Oh, uh, yes, uh, I beg your pardon, sir, but you seem to have tried both of them. Lestways, we had to make up both of the beds this morning. Really? Very absurd, said Parkins. I certainly never touched the other except to lay some things on it. Did it actually seem to have been slept in? Oh, yes, sir, said the maid. Why, all the things were crumpled and thrown about always, if you'll excuse me, sir. Quite as if anyone hadn't passed but a very poor night, sir. Oh, dear me, said Parkins. Well, I may have disordered it more than I thought when I unpacked my things. I'm very sorry to have to give you the extra trouble. I expect a friend of mine soon, by the way, a, a gentleman from Cambridge to come and occupy it for a night or two. That will be all right, I suppose, won't it? Oh, yes, uh, to be sure, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's no trouble, I'm sure, said the maid, and departed to giggle with her colleagues. Parking set forth with a stern determination to improve his game. I am glad to be able to report that he succeeded so far in this enterprise that the colonel, who had been rather repinning at the prospect of a second day's play in his company, became quite chatty as the morning advanced, and his voice boomed out over the flats as certain also of own minor poets have said, like some great borden in a minister's town. Extraordinary wind that we had last night, he said. In my old home, we should have had someone who had been whistling for it. Should you indeed, said Parkins. Is there a superstition of that kind still current in your part of the country? I don't know about superstition, said the Colonel. 
They believe in it all over Denmark and Norway, as well as on the Yorkshire coast. And my experience is, mind you, that there's generally something at the bottom of what these country folk hold to, and have held to for generations. But it's your drive. Whatever it might have been, the golfing reader will have to imagine the appropriate digestions at the proper intervals. When the conversation resumed, Parking said with a slight hesitancy, A purpose of uh, what you were saying just now, Colonel, I, I think I ought to tell you that my own views on such subjects are very strong. I am in fact a convinced disbeliever in what is called the supernatural. What? said the Colonel. Do you mean to tell me you don't believe in second sight or ghosts or anything of that kind? In nothing whatever of that kind, returned Parkins firmly. Well, said the Colonel, but it appears to me at that rate, sir, that you must be little better than a Sadducee. Parkins was on the point of answering that, in his opinion, the Sadducees were the most sensible persons he had ever read in the Old Testament. But feeling some doubt as to whether the mention of them was to be found in that work, he preferred to laugh off the accusations. Perhaps I am. <laughs> now, as to the whistling for the wind, let me give you my theory about that. The laws which govern winds are really not at all perfectly known to fisher folks and such. Of course, not known at all. A man or woman of eccentric habits, perhaps, or a stranger is seen repeatedly on the beach at some unusual hour and is heard whistling. Soon afterwards, a violent wind rises. A man who could read the sky perfectly or possessed a barometer could have foretold that it would. The simple people of a fishing village have no barometers and only a few rough rules for prophesizing weather. What more natural than the eccentric personage I postulated should be regarded as having raised the wind or that he or she should clutch eagerly at the reputation of being able to do so? Now, take last night's wind as it happens. I myself was whistling. I blew a whistle twice, and the wind seemed to come absolutely in answer to my call. If anyone had seen me, the audience had been a little restative under this harangue, and Parkins had, I fear, fallen somewhat into the tone of a lecturer. But at the last sentence, the colonel stopped. Whistling, were you? he said. What sort of whistle did you use? Play this stroke first. About that whistle you were asking, Colonel? It's a rather curious one. I have it in my... Oh, no, I've, I've left it in my room, as a matter of fact. I found it yesterday. And then Parkins narrated the manner of his discovery of the whistle, upon hearing which the Colonel grunted an opinion that, in Parkins' place, he should himself be careful about using a thing that had belonged to a set of papists, of whom, speaking generally, it might be affirmed that you never knew what they might have been up to. From this topic he diverged to the enormities of the vicar, who had given notice on the previous Sunday that Friday would be the feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, and that there would be a service at eleven o'clock in the church. This and other similar proceedings constituted, in the Colonel's view, a strong presumption that the vicar was a concealed papist, if not a Jesuit, and Parkins, who could not very readily follow the Colonel in this region, did not disagree with him. In fact, they got on so well together in the morning that there was no talk on either side or they are separating after lunch. Both continued to play well during the afternoon, or at least well enough, to make them forget everything else until the light began to fail them. 
Not until then did Parkins remember that he had meant to do some more investigating at the Perceptory. But it was of no great importance, he reflected. One day was as good as another. He might as well go home with the Colonel. As they turned the corner of the house, the Colonel was almost knocked down by a boy who rushed into him at the very top of his speed and then, instead of running away, remained hanging on to him and panting. The first words of the warrior were naturally those of reproof and objurgation, but he very quickly discerned that the boy was almost speechless with fright. Inquiries were useless at first. When the boy got his breath, he began to howl and still clung to the colonel's leg. What in the world is the matter with you? What have you been up to? What have you seen? said the two men. Oh, I've seen it wave at me at the window, wailed the boy, and I don't like it. What window? said the colonel, irritated. Come, pull yourself together, my boy. The front window. It was at the hotel, said the boy. At this point, Parkins was in favour of sending the boy home, but the colonel refused. He wanted to get to the bottom of it, he said. It was most dangerous to give a boy such a fright as this one had had, and if it turned out that people had been playing jokes, they should suffer for it in some way. By a series of questions, he made out the story. The boy had been playing about on the grass in front of the globe with some of the others, and they had gone home for their teas, and he was just going when it happened. He looked up to the front window, and he saw it waving at him. He seemed to be a figure of some sort, in white as far as, I, as far as I knew. I couldn't see his face, but he waved at me. And it weren't a right thing. Not to say, not a right person. Was there... A light in the room? Parkins asked. No, I didn't think so. I didn't look as if there was a light. Which was the window? Was it the top one or the second one? The second one it was, with the big window. I got two little ones up the side of it. Very well, my boy, said the Colonel, after a few more questions. You run away home now. I expect it was some person trying to give you a start. Another time, like a brave English boy, you just throw a stone. Well, no, not that exactly, but you go by and you speak about it to the waiter, or to Mr Simpson, the landlord, and yes, and say that I advised you to do so. The boy's face expressed some of the doubt he felt as to the likelihood of Mr Simpson's lending a favourable year to his complaint, but the Colonel did not appear to perceive this and went on. And here's a sixpence. No, see, it's a shilling, and you be off home... And don't think any more about it. The youth hurried off with agitated thanks, and the Colonel and Parkins went round to the front of the globe and reconnoitred. There was only one window answering to that description they had been hearing. Well, that's curious, said Parkins. It's evidently my window the lad was talking about. Will you come up for a moment, Colonel Wilson? We ought to be able to see if uh, anyone has been taking liberties in my room. They were very soon in the passage and Parkins made as if to open the door. Then he stopped and felt in his pockets. This is more serious than I thought, was his next remark. I remember now that before I started this morning, I locked the door. It is locked now, and what is more, here is the key. And he held it up. Now, he went on, if the servants are in the habit of going into one's room during the day, when one is away, I can only say that, well, I don't approve of it at all. Conscious of a somewhat weak climax, he busied himself in opening the door, which was indeed locked and in lighting candles. No, he said, nothing seems disturbed. Except your bed, put in the colonel. Excuse me, that isn't my bed, said Parkins. 
I don't use that one, but it does look as if someone had been playing tricks with it. It certainly did. The clothes were bundled up and twisted together in a most torturous confusion, Parkins pondered. That must be it, he said at last. I disordered the clothes last night in unpacking, and they haven't made it since. Perhaps they came in to make it, and the boys saw them through the window, and then they were called away and locked the door after them. Yes, I think that must be it. Well, ring and ask, said the Colonel, and this appealed to Parkins as practical. The maid appeared, and to make a long story short, deposed that she had made the bed in the morning when the gentleman was in the room, and hadn't been there since. No, she had no other key. Mr Simpson, he kept the keys. He'd be able to tell the gentleman if anyone had been up. This was a puzzle. Investigation showed that nothing of value had been taken, and Parkins remembered the disposition of small objects on tables and so forth well enough to be pretty sure that no pranks had been played with them. Mr and Mrs Simpson furthermore agreed that neither of them had given duplicate keys of the room to any person during the day. Nor could Parkins, fair-minded man as he was, detect anything in the demeanour of master, mistress or maid that indicated guilt. He was much more inclined to think that the boy had been imposing on the colonel. The latter was untowardly silent and pensive at dinner and throughout the evening. When he bade good night to Parkins, he murmured in a gruff undertone, "'You know where I am if you want me during the night?' "'Why, yes, thank you, Colonel Wilson. I think I do, but uh, there isn't much prospect of my disturbing you, I hope. By the way,' he added, "'did I show you that old whistle I spoke of? I think not. Well, well, well it's here, here somewhere.' The Colonel turned it over gingerly in the light of the candle. "'Can you make anything of the inscription?' asked Parkins, as he took it back. "'No, not in this light. What do you mean to do with it?' "'Oh, well, uh, when I get back to Cambridge, I shall submit it to some of the archaeologists there and see what they think of it, and very likely, if they consider it worth having, I may present it to one of the museums.' "'Hmm,' said the Colonel. "'Well, you may be right. All I know is that, if it were mine, I should chuck it straight into the sea.' It's no use talking, I'm well aware, but I expect that with you it's a case of live and learn. I hope so. I'm sure, and I wish you a good night. He turned away, leaving Parkins in act to speak at the bottom of the stair, and soon each other was in his own room. By some unfortunate accident, there were neither blinds nor curtains to the windows of the professor's room. The previous night he had little thought of this, but tonight there seemed to be every prospect of a bright moon rising to shine directly on his bed, and would probably wake him later on. When he noticed this, he was a good deal annoyed, but with an ingenuity which I can only envy, he succeeded in rigging up, with the help of a railway rug, some safety pins, and a stick and umbrella, a screen which, if only it had held together, would completely keep the moonlight off his bed. And shortly afterwards, he was comfortable in that bed when he had read a somewhat solid work long enough to produce a decided wish for sleep, he cast a drowsy glance round the room, blew out the candle, and fell back upon the pillow. He must have slept soundly for an hour or more, when a sudden clatter shook him up in a most unwelcome manner, and in a moment he realised what had happened. His carefully constructed screen had given way, and a very bright frosty moon was shining directly on his face. This was highly annoying. Could he possibly get up and reconstruct the screen, or could he manage to sleep if he did not? For some minutes he lay, 
and pondered over the possibilities. Then he turned over sharply, and with all his eyes open, lay breathlessly listening. Suddenly there had been a movement, he was sure, in the empty bed on the opposite side of the room. Tomorrow he would have to move it, for there must be rats or something playing about in it. It was quiet now. No. The commotion began again. There was a rustling and shaking, surely more than any rat could cause. I can figure to myself something of the Professor's bewilderment and horror, for I have, in a dream thirty years back, seen the same thing happen. But the reader will hardly, perhaps, imagine how dreadful it was to him to see a figure suddenly sit up in what he had known was an empty bed. He was out of his own bed in one bound and made a dash towards the window where lay his only weapon, the stick with which he had propped his screen. This was, as it turned out, the worst thing he could have done because the personage in the empty bed, with a sudden, smooth motion, slipped from the bed and took up a position with outspread arms between the two beds and in front of the door. Somehow, the idea of getting past it and escaping through the door was intolerable to him. He could not have borne, he didn't know why to touch it, and as for its touching him, he would sooner dash himself through the window than have it happen. It stood for a moment in a band of dark shadow, and he had not seen what its face was like. Now it began to move in a stooping posture, and all at once the spectre realised, with some horror and some relief, that it must be blind. For it seemed to feel about with its muffled arms in a groping and random fashion. Turning halfway from him, it became suddenly conscious of the bed he had just left and darted towards it and bent over and felt the pillows in a way which made Parkins shudder as he had never in his life thought possible. In very, very few moments, it seemed to know that the bed was empty and then moving forward into the area of light and facing the window, it showed for the first time what manner of thing it was. Parkins, who very much dislikes being questioned about it, did once describe something of it in my hearing, and I gathered that what he chiefly remembers about it is a horrible, an intensely horrible face of crumpled linen. What expression he read upon it, he could not or would not tell but that the fear of it went nigh to maddening him is certain. But he was not at leisure to watch it for long. With formidable quickness, it moved into the middle of the room, and as it groped and waved, one corner of its draperies swept across Parkin's face. He could not, though he knew how perilously a sound was, he could not keep back a cry of disgust and this gave the searcher an instant clue. It leapt towards him in an instant and the next moment he was halfway through the window backwards uttering cry upon cry at the utmost pitch of his voice and the linen face was thrust close into his own. At this almost the last possible second Deliverance came, as you will have guessed, the Colonel burst through the open door and was just in time to see the dreadful group at the window. When he reached the figures, only one was left. Parkins sank forward into the room in a faint, and before him, on the floor, lay a tumbled heap of bedclothes.
Colonel Wilson asked no questions, but busied himself in keeping everyone else out of the room and getting Parkins back into bed, and himself, wrapped in a rug, occupied the other bed for the rest of the night. Early the next day, Rogers arrived, more welcome than he would have been the day before, and the three of them held a very long consultation in the professor's room. At the end of it, the colonel left the hotel door carrying a small object between his finger and thumb, which he cast as far into the sea as a very brawny arm could send it. Later on, the smoke of a burning ascended from the back premises of the globe. Exactly what explanation was patched up for the staff and visitors at the hotel, I must confess, I do not recollect. The professor was somehow cleared of the ready suspicion of delirium tremors and the hotel of the reputation of a troubled house. There is not much question as to what would have happened to Parkins if the colonel had not intervened when he did. He would either have fallen out the window or else lost his wits. But it is not so evident what more the creature that came in answer to the whistle could have done than frighten. There seemed to be absolutely nothing material about it save the bedclothes of which it had made itself a body. The colonel, who remembered a not very dissimilar occurrence in India, was of the opinion that if Parkins had closed with it, it could really have done very little, and that its one power was that of frightening. The whole thing, he said, served to confirm his opinion of the Church of Rome. There is nothing more to tell, but as you may imagine, the professor's views on certain points are less clear-cut than they used to be. His nerves too have suffered. He cannot even now see a surplus hanging on a door quite unmoved, and the spectacle of a scarecrow in a field late on a winter afternoon has cost him more than one sleepless night. Thank you, Hugh. That was A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, by M.R. James. That confrontation or meeting or interaction that happens towards the end of the story with the quote-unquote ghost is, I think, one of the creepiest one of the creepiest literary encounters with a phantasmal presence outside of, honestly, Scrooge meeting Jacob Marley's ghost for the first time towards the start of A Christmas Carol. So a fantastic story, and that is all that we have for this first part of the show. Uh, remember, both episodes are up now, so you can go from here and hear three more great Christmas horror stories over on part two of ghost stories for Christmas. Thank you again, and I'm going to end this episode with a, a couple of words from my co-host, Bill Van Vagel, who also wanted to take some time just to wish everybody happy holidays. Take care, and we'll see you again soon. Ho, ho, ho. Jingle, jangle, jingle. Merry Christmas to all. I hope everybody has enjoyed the stories provided on this podcast for our listeners our guest speakers did an amazing job and the stories were absolutely terrifying scary and mysterious i hope everybody has a wonderful holiday no matter how they celebrate and what they celebrate and remember there should always be a festivus 
for the rest of us.